0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Orbit. And today I'm very excited to talk to Carla Bergman, who is one of the authors of Joyful Militancy, which I read a couple months ago. Really liked it. And I managed to interact with you on Twitter. I was so surprised. <laughs> Do you have like a notification for whoever talks about joy- Joyful Militancy?
1: Um, I don't. Uh, I'm not that tech savvy. I okay. look up at the hashtag now and again. Oh, nice. Um, and then I... I can't remember if it was when you did the book report or whatever, but I liked what you said, so.
0: <laughs> thank you. I'm glad you well, Thank you for it.
1: reading, though. I really, we really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah
0: the way it came about, it, I was in Portland and one of my friends was reading it on his balcony. And I was like, wow, that's such a good title of a book. And he says, yeah, this is actually, it's really helpful to a lot of the protest stuff that I've been doing. And it's been going around circles in uh, his friend group. So we started a little book club and started reading it. Oh, Um, that's really nice. Yeah, I thought it was a nice uh, organic way of finding the book. Uh, But about you, tell (laughs) us a little bit about yourself, where are you from, and tell us a little bit about your early life.
1: Uh, Okay, Um, well, first of all, thanks for having me here. Um, I don't know when this is going to air, but thank you for having me during the the dumpster fire that's (laughs) ongoing elections in the USA. I um, just wanted to acknowledge that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I live on Squamish, Muscoom, and Selah lands, which is also known as Canada, uh, Vancouver, specifically. Um, and I'm a mom, a parent uh, to a 26-year-old and a 16-year-old. Um, I write In Vancouver a your whole life? Yes. Um, No, Vancouver Island, which is Mm, gotcha. yeah, um, for a big chunk, Alberta for early years, um, lived in Toronto for a bit, uh, but mostly here, yeah, Uh, especially, you know, as an adult and uh, doing the family thing as being mostly here.
0: Nice. How did you get into, uh, I guess, the path that led you to write Joyful Militancy? Was it activism? How did you Um, get into this field? (laughs)
1: It's a bit of a story. it's actually, uh, it starts from a pretty personal place. I, um, I like to put it into some context around, um, so I was studying philosophy. I was actually in college doing a, a degree in uh, peace and conflict studies um, and actually majoring in genocide studies. So really devastating work um, and researching genocide and stuff every day. So it was just the opposite of joy. Um, so I just wanted to put that context into place. And then I uh, dropped out of that because it was really intense and I moved, that was in Toronto and I moved back to Vancouver and just took a philosophy class on a whim. Um, and it just so happened that the, um, the professor was a, um, just a, a Spinozian, I guess, a Spinoza fanatic. Um, and so we read a bit of him and, um, uh, you know, it's one of these seeds planted, right? Because he, he talks a lot about the passions, this idea that joy is something that um, is not just an emotion, it's, 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 it, it enables us to act and be more. Um, and it's, it's just bigger than, um, you know, just a, a, a tiny emotion, or emotion, a big emotion. And it, mm-hmm. it just includes a lot of things. Um, and so that was kind of a seed. And at the same time, I was rereading The Dispossessed by Ursula Le Guin. And she also, um, there's so many quotes in that book about um, how she defined joy. And she, um, so it just was another uh, seed planting that through struggle, through some of our hardest times in life, joy is this powerful uh, affect or thing that can just rise up in ourselves and, and, and enable us to reach our own power and, and to uh, do more. Um, uh, and then at the uh, personal level, I was going through a really challenging time. I got, I got diagnosed with an illness, uh, some family trauma. And I kept saying like, I have a belly full of joy, no matter what. And I just kept talking about it. And so at that moment, this was actually around, uh, 2001, September, Sound familiar to you folks in the U.S.? <laughs> so um, it was a big rupture in my life. A bunch of things kind of happened at once. And then that was also like this larger political thing that was happening. Um, and I, I would say at that time is when joy got politicized for me. It was this thing of like, I'm just going to put out joy and think about joy. And, uh, you know, it kind of became my handle, Joyful Carla. Um, Yeah. So it's a very long story. So that's 2001. So life goes on. Um, I, at that time I decided to uh, um, really root myself in community and in parenting and um, uh, embracing a a different way of being with my child and uh, encouraging and supporting his uh, autonomy. Um, So we joined an alternative education project and um, just went from there. And then I ended up working with youth in a, another project called the Purple Thistle Center, which was founded by Matt Hearn and Six Youth in uh, 2001 as well. Um, but I didn't start really hanging out there until about 2007. Um, I became the co-director in 2009. Um, anyways, it was you know a, a project that really centered thriving and youth autonomy, and we were there to support and that intersection of art and activism. Um, and I was making a documentary film about the project with a co-director, my co-director, Corin Brown, and I was interviewing Richard Day um, for it. And then he was making a documentary at the same time. So he interviewed me and I was telling him about the fissile mm-hmm. and he said, wow, that sounds like joyful militancy. And this was in, I think, wow. 2011. And I was like,
0: bing! <laughs> There it is.
1: (laughs) What is joyful (laughs) militancy? Oh my gosh. And so we kind of ran with it at the Thistle. We made screen prints and blah, blah, blah. And then um, I had known Nick since 2011. I actually met Richard through him. Um, And we put in a grant for Institute for Anarchist Studies to write an essay on joyful militancy (laughs) and got funded um, and started interviewing people. And about a year and a half later, we're like, wow, this is way bigger than an essay. So um, by then I was actually on the board of IAS and I, um, we just put in a proposal for a book for the interventions um, book series and we got it. And um, so it was just a very lived personal politicizing of the word joy. Uh, it was really connected to my parenting, to youth, uh, youth um, supporting youth to have an autonomous, powerful life and thriving life. And then just all intersected. And um there was also alongside all these kind of joyful abruptions around the world from Occupy mm-hmm. to Arab Spring and all that, alongside that we were seeing an increase of call-out culture, an increase of um disposal, disposable relationship uh, stuff happening within mm-hmm. movements. Um and so we just and these yeah these I think we write about it in our intro like these conversations were happening really qu- Privately and really quietly, um, for quite a few years, about like how do we deal with this this widget radicalism that's coming about? Um, mm-hmm. So we decided to tackle it write so yeah. about it <laughs> to
0: address it in the book. Yeah, uh, I really love how much joy has been like a central motivator in your life, mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. fantastic. Um, yeah. I notice how when you write about the empire, which is you know basically capitalism, just <laughs> uh, oppressive government forces. Uh, these systems kind of minimize joy and create what you talk about as sadness. Yeah. And I'm curious, why would anyone uh, want to be part of the empire when this is happening, when it minimizes your capacity for joy?
1: Right, I mean, it's, it's not, I mean, it's stuff that happens to us from really early on, this, mm-hmm. this idea of subjugation. Um, I mean, I think it's interesting that I. Um, well, I don't. I don't think it's. So. I mean, partly why I work around parenting and children's, um, like I have a hashtag called Solidarity Begins at Home, um, is because I think it really gets rooted really early on in kids' lives. Um, they live a, a tremendously uh, consentless <laughs> life, from being touched to being forced to touch to eating to forced to sleep. I mean, these are. Ways that our bo- that body gets subjugated really early on, um, mm-hmm. and then even in the most radical homes, um, then you know we live in this oppressive world, this world that kind of despises children and or distrusts children in lots of ways, and so children continue to be subjugated. So there's a real practical way that this happens. Mm-hmm. It's not this weird thing that's outside of ourselves, and I think. Um, where I really learned about this idea of subjugation being something that happens to our physical body, but it's also in our brains is through reading Orwell, you know, because it's, it's the thoughts too. And it's, we, and then we're, we're just brought into it, into the empire way of being and we do it. We, right. And we've, we've known replicated. nothing else. <laughs> yeah. We know nothing else. We replicate it in our relationships. Um, is, you know, and then of course a, oppression is the axes of different oppressions of where you sit with your access and power as a whole other part of that. But subjugation is something that starts really early on. Um, So I don't think it's about like us buying into it. I think it's like just, it's embodied. Unlearning.
0: I think in, uh, I watched your Purple Thistle documentary, you talk about de-schooling so much, which I think is really important, but also seems like a tremendous amount of work to convince someone (laughs) that what they've been raised in is oppressive yeah. like how is there a way to do de-scaling schooling at scale uh, in kind of a mass way
1: no i don't think so and in fact the person who i mean he didn't even coin the phrase it got sort of put on him uh yvonne ellidge um he wrote the book "Deschooling society um mm-hmm. which wasn't the title he wanted and he immediately uh rewrote a, uh, wrote a new book right after called um oh my gosh escaping education or something like that Um, so his, I, so, uh, it's not something that can just be, just go hugely systemic. It has to start really small because, um, people are so deeply schooled and it's pretty global at this point. Um, obviously there's, you know, this is where it gets nuanced and complex, but there's, um, a really good documentary called schooling the world, uh, that I recommend. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, I think like to me, de-schooling, there's kind of two pieces to it, um, there's like the psychological undoing of the schooled, what schooling did to you, whether it uh, entrenched this idea of, of no longer being curious or being competitive or all those kinds of things that get sedimented in um, early on in school. And then there's like the act of it, of uh, living a life outside of the compounds of a curriculum based education system. And that to me is more, Um, what John Holt called unschooling um, or some people call it home learning or life learning. Um, It's this idea of like the, the learner has agency over what they learn and how they learn. Um, And that sometimes can be in schools, outside of schools, a mix of schooling and unschooling or odd schooling, if you want to call it, whatever, you know, (laughs) my kids have all done, they've done a mix of it all. Um, yeah. yeah, that answer your question.
0: <laughs> yeah, so what I'm hearing is just it has to happen on the small scale, which looks like it's what you did at the Purple Thistle. Mm-hmm. And other people, I guess, are trying to mimic it and make it happen. As, yeah. Yeah. As a, I mean,
1: there's like one on. of the things there's, a, there's so many uh, amazing projects uh, around the world. Um, so that's, yeah, It's people can just starts you know life without schooling um unschooling deschooling, schooling these are kind of the catchphrases but it's all over the world it's not a you know there's a there's a belief this happens with anarchism too that it's Mm -hmm. all white people and middle class people and this is not true i mean i'm working class um i know a lot of yeah it just i don't want to get all testimony and anecdotal but i think that people who immediately throw it onto like a a white middle class privilege thing i wonder about who their circle is you know like who do right. they because like it's so many black women in the u.s unschool their children um it's because they know that school is very damaging it's a white supremacy environment um yeah so uh, yeah it's it's small scale but it it, it needs to connect to other struggles and in the intersections and and i guess what i why i think like what was cool about the purple thistle is it ran after school hours because it was Mm -hmm. for all kids, because most kids need to be somewhere during the day, especially under the age of 15, um, parents have to work. So it's really connected to capitalism and other systems, right? Um, not everyone can, some kids need to get away from their parents. Let's just be honest. (laughs) So like school's actually safer for them than their home. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's just very nuanced. It can, it's not a, a quick fix. Um,
0: but, yeah. yeah, the, I think the overlap with what I do is I work with young people who are trying to basically make like, make their own living on the internet. And it's right. almost a shift between, uh, like traditional schooling and de-schooling because they suddenly have to teach themselves a tremendous amount of stuff. Neat. And so what I loved seeing about the purple thistle and also with the people that I work with is that. It's these young people who are converts who realize, oh no, I need to make my own curriculum now, right. uh, which is really exciting and like is work to be done. Um, I know that mainly I'm working with uh, artists who are creating, you know, shops and web presences on the internet. I'm mm-hmm. curious what uh, the youth in your circles are working on and what they're interested in.
1: Um... Yeah, I mean, the pandemic's kind of changed things a lot. Uh, That's amazing work. I'm glad to hear you're doing that. Um, Thanks. uh, Yeah, and the other, I just want, it reminded me that self-direction, self-directed learning is the other kind of buzzwords that people can Mm -hmm. find out more about this. Um, uh, Yeah, I mean, I'm not working directly with youth outside of a few right now on uh, Grounded Futures Project. Um, And because of the pandemic um, and because I started doing more work um, as an artist myself, like oh, I, I wouldn't call it solo artists. It's like solo together. I've, I've been calling it, you know, making films and whatnot. So it's been less and less. So I, um, but yeah, I think what you're offering is amazing. I What I see with the Zoomer crowd that I know um, mm-hmm. is that they are so internet sat; like they can just make videos like instantly. And they can do so much creative, like make uh, comics. So the, the young people in my life um, primarily are in the LGBTQ plus um, uh, communities. And uh, it, so the internet is really important to them. Mm, we have yeah. a podcast that we're doing. Yes, I don't know.
0: <laughs> What's your relationship with the internet? Do you feel like you're a bit of a <laughs> like a, uh, behind the times or um, with it? No.
1: I, it's funny My older son told me that I, I, um, I use the internet like a millennial. So I don't know if that's a compliment or cause I'm an It That expert. sounds like
0: a compliment, <laughs> but it depends on who you are.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it's that I, I'm not like, I I've, I've been on the internet since I, like, I think I my first email was, I was like 25 or something. I was, you know, so, um, In the late eighties, so Mm -hmm. you know, I was not a late comer to it. Um, Mind you, no one else was on email, so it was you know chat rooms. That's yeah. Um, And uh, you know, I've used the different social media platforms. I tend to quit them all. I'm not a big fan. I like Instagram for some reason. I probably because I'm a very visual person. Um, I definitely, yeah, I know how to use. I guess part of what he was saying is that I do know how to use it for you know quote unquote branding or marketing. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Right. You know, like I that's kind of a millennial skill. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently.
0: I guess um, kinda.
1: Yeah. I don't know. I mean yeah. I'm not scared of it. I know how to make web websites a little bit. And
0: yeah, that's uh I think I'm just curious because like you said, young people are very savvy at the internet. And I think whenever I look at the news of like, you know, whoever breaks into Twitter, it's usually a 16-year-old,
1: <laughs> and oh, really?
0: I I just hope that, like, young people, and from what I've seen, they are, they're using these skills to, like, amplify their own personal joy through self-directed learning.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, what, like, in terms of your work, tell me more about Grounded Futures, because was, is that, like, interviewing young people, or what's the... Um, What's the so
1: yeah, um, so this project kind of, is kind of a two, and uh, like all, all my life, there's always like a bunch of different nuanced things coming together. So my 16 year old um, last year during um, the school strikes for climate that were going on, he was feeling pretty frustrated with how narrow the conversation was for youth. Um, like you were allowed to be out protesting and that was about it. And so he really right. wanted to have conversations about, you know, how do we, how do we thrive survive, survive and thrive amid capitalism, ongoing capitalism. And what if it can't be stopped? What are we doing to build community, to build systems of resilience, to build systems of thriving? So, I mean, he's been raised in this home, so we're, we're not all, we're all about prefiguration, but it's a big part of our lives. Right. <laughs> um, So we, uh, so Nick actually was involved with this conversation and we were going to have workshops, um, with our community, mostly young people, but all ages tackling this conversation because, um, youth want to talk about this stuff. Um, and then the pandemic hit at the same time, I was working with a couple of folks, Jamie Lee Gonzalez and Melissa Roach on creating a multimedia platform to train, um, young folks and women and non-binary folks to um, create, create and make their own media, um, whether it was through video or podcasting, basically amplifying everyday thriving is kind of the idea. Um, and so the world's connected um, and, we cr- and I, the goal is to, once the pandemic's over, is to do a lot of this in person Mm-hmm. you know, training and skill training. Um, a lot of, and this kind of connects to my work for the last decade I've been doing this right. Um, in different mediums. Um,
0: it's like spreading so the,
1: idea, the word Yeah, and, <laughs> and encouraging
0: is to, conversation.
1: Yeah. And give the skills, right. Give the skills over in an autonomous way. Um, a lot of, um, BIPOC folks and, um, LGBTQ folks are left, you know, are left out of, uh, um, the institutions that train people how to do this, it's often too expensive. So, um, we got a grant, uh, an emergency funding grant through under COVID to start a youth run podcast, and that is the Grounded Futures show. And because of the podcast and because of this intersection of this conversation I had with my son last year, I'm working with him and his partner, both are two trans young folks, um, because his partner's in our in our pod, <laughs> um, the, pan- the pandemic pod. And uh, so we've, uh, we're have we doing shows um, and they're talking to older folks who have lived, you know, kind of radical lives or do cool stuff and they're talking to them about, you know, how- Yeah, downloading do you, that
0: information. <laughs>
1: yeah, how do you thrive in the everyday, regard, despite capitalism and ongoing, Colonialism and whatnot. Um, so that's one show, and then I have another show with Eleanor Goldfield, who's in the U.S., called Silver Th- and it's called Silver Threads, Still Walking, Still Waking. And we, um, it's a kind of a continuation of the book Joyful Emergency because it's um, we are interviewing long-term radicals, hence Silver Threads, um, and <laughs> about you know how how to share a bit of their story about how they became a radical, how they became an organizer. Um, to share some of the humility along the way, the learning, the flailing, because, um, you know, we're at a moment in history where uh, there's an upsurge of people joining movements, joining, uh, arriving on the scenes. And alongside that, as always, there's an uptick of rigid radicalism. So we wanted to interrupt or intervene on that conversation and share like voices from people who I think, you know, long-term activists that a lot of people look up to and think they've always been, you know, quote unquote woke mm-hmm. and having them share like, no, I haven't. <laughs> like, here's some <laughs> of my This is a process. And I'm still learning and I'm always learning and mm-hmm. I'm always learning, especially from young folks. So that show is um, twice a month. Um, you can find it on all the podcast things and then Grounded Future show with the youth. It's once a month, the third Sunday. This and, sounds
0: yeah, like, and... yeah. Go ahead. This sounds like meaningful work, which is uh, like good for joy, good for the soul, but I find that when at least when I do meaningful work, ways to get paid from it either <laughs> cloud the vision or make it impossible how like how do you balance
1: right. the needs of
0: <laughs> capitalism with doing this meaningful work
1: yeah, so I right away like the main thing that needs to be acknowledged here is that I have a partner who is uh, does a day job is working class, works for a cable company. Um, A lot of people don't know that story about our family. That's like, I don't, you know, he's not like, I mean, to me, he's like the, you know, the working class hero. Um, but he also wouldn't, he would be uncomfortable with that statement, but he, it is a bit of a sacrifice and it was part of the decision when we decided to take this alternative path with our kids to unschool and to follow their, their predilections, their needs their desires to have an autonomous, uh, autonomous zone in our home, um, required me to be home a lot. Um, and so i did a lot of volunteerism and did a lot of the work community work with really little to no pay uh, throughout my 40s um was that smart probably not um are we living precariously totally do we own a house no um, so you know i'm holding out for capitalism to empire to crash so, right you know, we're all going to be in the same boat I, yeah uh, i don't think boats,
0: you're but. alone in that
1: yeah um, and then the other thing, uh, through mentorship from um, other people, particularly Matt Hearn at the Thistle and other folks, I learned how to grant write. Um, I learned how to, to do it in a really authentic way, uh, honest way. I don't, you know, you hear people, radical artists and radical folks say that, you know, they, they, change, the lang- they change everything in the grant so that, and then they have to compromise their project to fit in. I don't do that. Like, I'm very upfront to what I'm doing. Um, and it, I mean, right. creating a, creating projects that is at the core about young people thriving, everyone wants to fund that. Right. <laughs> Most people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's so I, I've always been able to bring in a little bit of pay that way. Um, it's sometimes minimal, sometimes it's really good. I also, as I was saying earlier, after all these years of doing work, it's built up to me becoming a senior artist. And so I now as an individual can get funding. Um, Canada is pretty good at arts funding and I can get funding to make films. Um, and the work that I, that brings me uh, me personally a lot of joy, um, I've been really grateful to get that kind of funding so that the more um, activist work, community work that I do on, um, like I have a sol- this project called Solidarity Housing that I do with Nick William Montgomery, mm-hmm. um, you know, we can do that for less pay because it's you know, it's just all part of it.
0: Right. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. yeah, it's
1: you know, it's a juggling act.
0: Um, it is a juggling act. And in compromising. A, yeah. Ju- <laughs> yeah. How about measuring you? values? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in my work with young people, I like I ask them, I was like, what what do you value? Because you you're gonna balance what you do based on that. And a lot of them can't answer. They're like, oh, I don't want to think about that. <laughs> Uh, So it's definitely an ongoing process when you realize, oh, I need to sacrifice one thing if I'm going to pursue this thing that I care very much about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, What have you been doing to bring yourself joy during this like fall, winter?
1: Yeah, I mean, working on Silver Threads and Grounded Futures has been really helpful, like having Mm -hmm. these conversations, especially during the last uh, couple of months, like talking with folks in the U.S., uh, primarily for Silver Threads, um, Indigenous and Black folks who, you know, their life was, sh- uh, they were living under an immense amount of shittiness pre-Trump, mm-hmm. during Trump, and well, post-Trump. And so, like, having that, little, these conversations with folks who don't center elections or center the the presidency but talk more about empire and about oppression and about thriving amid that and about creating alternatives has been uh just the most wonderful thing i feel really grateful to these folks to have these conversations um yeah i'm you know my 26 year old um is one of my best friends in the world and he was living in england uh doing his ma and he had to come home because of the pandemic. So oh, having yeah. him home is probably, yeah, the the silver lining. Nice. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> what, uh, what do you hope to see more of in 2021? Like, what do you think that people like you, me, and uh, our friends uh, yeah. can do to, uh, I guess, dismantle empire, honestly?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, these conversations, uh, okay. Thank you for doing them. I think that's important: more listening, more trusting each other, um, more showing up with care and love. Uh, not, I know that sounds cliche, but really, it's uh, we're just. I'm just not in this to convince people. Um, I mm-hmm. don't like really care if you're socialist, anarchist, whateverist. In mm-hmm. fact, I, it'd be great if you weren't anist. Um, I yeah, I would just I, more uprisings on the streets. Uh, I think more. Um, yeah, just listening and these conversations, more conversations and finding ways to um, thrive.
0: Yeah, I think we're hopefully on the right track. All of us have been looking out for each other.
1: Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the mutual aid stuff's been incredible. Um, can I plug a book that I was part of that's speaking of? Yeah,
0: absolutely. I was about to ask. I want to know about uh, books that you're uh, you're excited about, people that inspire you. What's this one you're holding? Pandemic? So
1: um, this is called Pandemic Solidarity, um, uh, Mutual Aid During the COVID-19 Crises, uh, ed- uh, forward by Rebecca Solnit. It was edited by Marina Citrin and a collective of folks all over the world, which I was lucky enough to be part of uh, really early on. It's out from Pluto press. Um, great really early on in the pandemic Marina reached out to me and asked if I would help or uh, do a chapter on Canada. Um, I said I would like to do that, but I, I think, uh, it'd be better if it was turtle Island. Um, so I collaborated with um, someone in the U S and we did a turtle Island, which include Mexico and, um, uh, T- there's a chapter on Taiwan, a chapter on Korea, um, Turkey, Gre- Greece, Italy, Rojava, Iraq, um, England, uh, uh, Brazil, Portugal, Argentina. I feel like I'm missing some, but you can yeah. see, like, so, and it's a book about all, and they're all, it's filled with interviews with people doing mutual aid um, all over the world. So super inspiring. Um, I've
0: been, like, encountering the term mutual aid more and more. And of course, yeah. it sounds like something I can get behind. It sounds just like people helping each other.
1: Yeah, cooperation. Uh,
0: yeah. <laughs> uh, and so, like, part of me wants to be like, yeah, we should do more mutual aid, but I want to make sure, like, I'm understanding it. Is it just, like, being a community? <laughs>
1: yeah, I mean, the thing is, is that it's, tr- it's true. And it has become, like, this word, <laughs> this the saying that's being, like, everything gets captured by capitalism and nonprofits and kind of molded into something that's not. So um, it just essentially means cooperation, right? So Mm -hmm. it's not an economic system uh, at all. (laughs) Like that's where people get conflated. They conflate Mm -hmm. Uh, Peter Kropotkin, the Russian anarchist was a naturalist way back. He studied, he was really frustrated with how Darwinism was misunderstood because Darwin actually proved that cooperation was more, what we what what animals do but it got right
0: but but capitalism pulled survival of the fittest
1: (laughs) and it yeah an empire and and right other people yeah so uh wrote a book called mutual aid to um and it it, if you go through it he you know he basically is trying to show that him and darwin agreed um he uh he used the word solidarity and mutual aid interchangeable um, so this idea that, um, it's not, it's not the charity. It's like you always, everyone is taken care of. You take care of each other with your resources, which includes, um, everything right to <laughs> no one d- goes without, um, one of his, uh, you know, I, I read it 30 years ago or whatever. Um, at the beginning of the pandemic, I reread the book, uh, um, cause I knew, I knew something was going to happen around it getting, messed up, messed up yeah. of what it means. Um, and there's this this part that always stuck with me. He was talking about like pre, um, you know, at the brink, and Sylvia Federici talks about this too, sort of at the brink of a revolt in England and Europe. Um, the state, you know, before the state really clamped down. So people were lived in a, a very differently, right? Um, mutual aid was something and solidarity was something that was happening all, everywhere all the time. It was normal. Like, so he talks about it for an example, the, the, the normal way to behave in pub, public, if you were sitting down to eat food, um, you would ask if anyone around is hungry and did they need some food, right? Mm-hmm. So this was kind of the practices of the everyday, right? Um, and people were really organizing and, and, Uh, coming together and helping each other and the, you know, the oligarchy, the ruling class saw that, you know, that there was a brink of revolts and there was tiny revolts happening. So um, the state and the corporate, whatever, they weren't corporate yet, but the, you know, the oligarchy, Mm -hmm. um, you know, came up with this idea of charities um, as a way to undermine solidarity, to undermine mutual aid that was just happening in and between people. And so they literally created soups kitchens and things and such and that, you know, you don't need to help each other anymore. We've got it. The state's going to take care of it. Um, Fascinating. And so, the, so it's like when I hear folks say that they want to institutionalize mutual aid or solidarity and make it and like it's already been done, it's called charities. And it undermines this this social, like the social bonds that we have with each other. Um, through right care through sharing resources, uh, through cooperation. Uh, that is not extractive at all, that's res- rooted in reciprocity, you know, indigenous folks talk about this all the time in Turtle Island, that that's where they come from, and it brings me to the topic that I care most about is, like, how can we undo it, this extraction model, which is in our relationships, it's, cap- it's at the center of capitalism, and I would argue that it's the center of, it's, it's a part of any economic system, um, you know, like this idea. So where, this is it where
0: they take the good thing and they sell it?
1: Yeah, or it's just it's not reciprocity, right? It's, uh-huh. it's a taking and not giving back. Um, it's you know. So I'm just I'm just more interested in um, like I joke that I'm I am noist uh, except for maybe a mutualist mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because I think you know I just I, I I just know that we can live that way. I know that I live that way with my friends and kin and family.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it starts on a personal level. And I think That's our gut point, reaction yeah. is to, like, I, I guess, like, even in tech startup spheres, I live in Seattle, and people are like, how can this operate at scale? If it doesn't operate at scale, what are you doing? And yeah. the truth of the matter is, what you're talking about is, it's, su- it's, a, it's an incredibly personal journey to, yeah. like, decide to... um like provide mutual aid and solidarity. It's not a systemic thing. It's, yeah, it's like a
1: yeah. I spiritual mean, the, awakening. Yeah, I mean, the, the, you know, the, the opposite of all this is competition, right? And mm. so, um, and greed and growth, you know, growing, you know, all the capitalism sort of <laughs> ideas, right? Right. Um, and so, yeah, how do, you, how do you survive under capitalism, thrive? without being extractive. And I yeah. think it, if we could start with our relationships, we'd, you know, like there's, there's all these calls that have been around forever, like people over profit, right? Um, right. I'm my mom, my mom, like people over projects. Like we have to like, yeah, like I just, I just know so many people, you know, there's so many organizations that don't do that. They're, they're more interested in the cause than they are into each other. And if we're extracting from each other and competing with each other, like mutual aid is not happening at all. In those moments, I don't mm-hmm. care if everyone's getting fed. If you're treating each other like crap, it's
0: acceptable. then then you failed. <laughs>
1: you failed. Yeah. Uh,
0: we're nearing the end of our time. Uh, I'm curious: is there any uh, books or people you recommend that we look into? Anyone you follow on Twitter that you're interested that you're um, a fan I mean, of?
1: I think if you want to learn more about mutual aid, I think like Cleep and Ali and the Indigenous Mutual Aid, like they do um, some really great work. Um, that's in, I know you're in the U.S., so I was wanting to do that. I, Dean Spade just came out with a book called Mutual Aid um, mm-hmm. during, before, during, and after COVID um, that is really good for talking about the theory more than we do. Like, ours is more the stories. Um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: And um, I always recommend Parable of the Sower by... Uh, um, Octavia Butler. Um, I think it's a really good time, a book, timely book. And uh, The Dispossessed by Ursula K. Le Guin.
0: All right, great. I I love a reading list. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much again for coming on the show. It was great talking to you.
1: Thanks so much for having me and best of luck to all your work. Oh, for sure.
0: I will see you on Twitter.
1: Okay. (laughs) Bye.